break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here with you on The Punch-Out, 222-2022. 222-22. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Got plenty for you here in the show, as we always do. Primarily, we will be discussing today the ongoing crisis and conflict in Europe. Russia's decision over the weekend to recognize the independence of Donetsk and Lugansk to breakaway regions of the Ukraine that have been operating as independent nations for several years now has brought the world closer to the brink of a new war in Europe, including a possible confrontation between nuclear powers. As one might expect, the move has been met with outrage among most Western governments, ambivalence among many other world powers, and renewed calls for both war and peace from various forces across the globe. Western nations are already placing sanctions on Russia, and the question at this point is whether or not conflict can be avoided or whether war, at some level, is inevitable. The issue more or less hinges on whether or not NATO and Ukraine consider the Russian declaration of recognition and its follow-up statement that it's sending peacekeepers into the two territories as the start of a war. The United States government has called this the beginning of an invasion. President Zelensky of Ukraine has stated that that country will not, quote-unquote, cede territory. However, President Zelensky, in his response to Russian moves, also stated, quote, We believe that there will be no war, there will be no powerful war against Ukraine, and there will be no wide escalation by the Russian Federation, end quote. Zelensky went on to also urge the West to implement sanctions in the same speech, so it seems the NATO-Ukraine-EU front will be content to impose sanctions rather than actually fight if Russian recognition doesn't amount to much more than recognition in the current borders, as it were, the current line of control vis-a-vis Donetsk, Lugansk, and Ukraine, which is the biggest wild card. Because the two regions claim a territory wider than what they technically control. So one question is, will they fight for that land? And will Russia back them? And on the flip side of that coin, will Ukraine try to test Russia and take back the land controlled by the self-declared Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics? As for the first, it isn't quite clear, and officials of the region have offered various takes on whether or not they will push forward. Russia has stated they will respect the borders as, quote, local leaders exercise authority and jurisdiction which means they will more or less support the current status quo. But it does at least imply if the breakaway regions decide to fight to expand the territory they control, that Russia would at least consider backing them. Ukraine's statement around wider wars seems to suggest they aren't that eager to launch a full-on offensive to retake the two areas, since at this stage that would mean a war with Russia that they clearly can't win. It also seems to suggest they aren't expecting either of the two regions or Russia to push beyond the current front line. The broader messaging around it then, as we stated earlier, is that NATO, Ukraine, EU seem likely to stick to sanctions, barring an escalation beyond the existing front line. But of course, all of this is very up in the air. And also, Ukraine has raised the possibility of developing its own nuclear deterrent, 
during this latter stage of the crisis. Ukraine is demanding consultations at the United Nations around the Budapest Memorandum signed in 1994. The Budapest Memorandum was signed in relation to the accession of Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty and giving up all nuclear weapons on their territory that dated back to Soviet air deployments. And it was signed by those countries, Russia, the U.S., and the U.K. It was not an official treaty per se, but all sides did agree that the deal was there would be no aggression or territorial breaches against the former Soviet territories. And if there were, that the signatories would go to the Security Council if any of the former Soviet states, quote, should become a victim of an act of aggression or an object of a threat of aggression in which nuclear weapons are used. So by asking for a conversation in the United Nations and stating that pending the outcome, they will consider, quote unquote, further measures, Ukraine is clearly laying the groundwork for potential U.N. sanctions against Russia, U.N.-backed military action against Russia, or barring agreement on making either of those things possible, raising the prospect of developing their own nuclear arsenal, something that Russia has stated it believes Ukraine could do in fairly short order. Western nations are heeding Ukraine's call to sanction Russia, and while we won't go through a long list here, the U.S., the U.K., and the E.U. are all imposing various levels of sanctions, and Germany has, for now, stopped gas flows from starting in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is something that it had previously ruled out. It also seems likely that the UEFA Champions League will be moved out of St. Petersburg. Responses around the world have been anywhere from strongly critical to neutral, At the Security Council, Western nations laid into Russia as expected. India more or less punted, not opining on Russia's decision to recognize the two regions and calling for, quote unquote, restraint on all sides and, quote, taking into account the legitimate security interest of all countries and aim towards securing long term peace and stability in the region and beyond, end quote. In a way, that can be seen as a favorable statement for Russia, since India was clearly signaling it doesn't favor U.N. action against Russia on this issue. China, Russia's close ally, detailed that, quote, China once again calls on all parties to exercise restraint, recognize the importance of implementing the indivisible security principle, ease the situation and resolve differences through dialogue and negotiation, end quote. And this is more or less both sizing it, so to speak, and shows China's to some degree, ambivalent about the Russian actions. That's how it seems, at least. Kenya, the main African nation on the Security Council, blasted Russia with a strong statement denouncing the moves for violating the U.N. Charter. And fears of a war in Africa have been relatively high, given the fact Ukraine and Russia provide significant wheat shipments to the continent and are involved in various African economies in various ways. At the time of our recording, some progressive forces on the African continent, however, had solidarized with Russia and many had yet to issue statements. Across Europe, reactions among various progressive forces were mainly muted as we went to press, with some limited calls for accelerated attempts at peace from major figures like Jean-Luc Mélenchon in France and Sahara Wagenacht in Germany, as well as the Greek Communist Party, all three of whom also offered criticism of Russia's actions. Turkey, an ally of Ukraine, and to a lesser extent also of Russia, and also a member of NATO, denounced the Russian recognition. Ultimately, the situation speaks to the fact that Russia's actions cut against the principles that many progressive forces around the world have made a clear point of emphasis on, namely the U.N. Charter. The U.N. Charter more or less prohibits the breaching of the territorial integrity of a U.N. member by another U.N. member without a vote of the U.N. in approval. Now, the first thing that has to be noted here is that this has been a dead letter since pretty much the signing of the U.N. Charter, that the U.S. has been the most consistent violator on this score from the beginning, including most recently in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. That being said, there has been a greater focus on this issue from a range of forces, both countries and people's movements, around the U.N. Charter as part of growing anger against unilateral wars and sanctions by the United States. 
And Russia had been a leading advocate of some of these efforts, like the Group of Friends for the Defense of the UN Charter, which was a group of nations formed by Venezuela and China mainly at the United Nations to explicitly fight for and uphold the principles of the UN Charter against unilateral coercive measures. The Russian perspective on this is twofold. First, that ultimately they were forced into this situation by NATO, that this is more or less a form of self-defense. Secondly, and it must be said falsely, Russia is arguing that Ukraine is essentially not a real country, that it's a product of Soviet nationality policy, so that this really is not a matter of violating national borders, but more or less a dispute over borders and nationalities that was never quite settled and thus not fully legitimate or falling under UN charter rules, more or less. The basic point being that they aren't hypocritical. So clearly, even many forces who generally agree that the overall situation is a result of NATO's unjustified expansion or even existence are also hesitant to endorse the Russian rationale for the recognition based on their own views on how to approach territorial integrity and disagreements over the historical interpretations put forward by the Russians. All in all, the situation is clearly on a knife's edge, and the possibility of war is quite high. What form that takes? Who knows? But given that nuclear powers are tangled up in this, it can't be overstated how dangerous a spiral into a full-on war will be. What all of these current happenings seem to prove is, the basic problem is this. Can there be an inclusive security regime in Europe that takes into account the concerns of all sides? Ultimately, that in and of itself seems unclear. The NATO forces for sure have already seemingly ruled that out. They are pursuing a policy that builds up Europe as an anti-Russian bulwark explicitly and that rubbishes any claim by Russia around quote-unquote security concerns. So in that sense, it seems there is no possible deal on the offing. Ultimately, the basis for any lasting peace can only be a deeper form of demilitarization from Ireland to the Urals, which would mean an end to NATO, U.S. troops in Europe, and U.S. weapons in Europe if it was going to work. It would also mean serious changes to how Russia deploys its own forces if it was going to work. Now, it's certainly more than possible that these things could happen, but it means giving up on the idea of the West and Russia being enemies and forging a new united future. Sadly, the voices arguing for that in the United States and the European Union have been totally silenced and sidelined, and increasingly, in Russia, it seems forces favoring that form of solution are abandoning it as utopian. So right now, we are staring down the barrel of a never-ending high-stakes nuclear standoff. At best, a Cold War. It's very dangerous. But the diplomatic road is not closed. It's just a question of how, or if, imperial ambitions will be allowed to continue to get in the way. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. Yeah. Oh.